If the foundations are destroyed, if the building blocks of society are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We live in a nation right now where the foundations have been destroyed, are being destroyed right before our lives. We live in such a time where the institutions of God are under full attack. We are witnessing the destruction of the family in America. We are witnessing the growing tyrannical government in America. And we are witnessing a church that has lost its desire to be salt and light of the world. We are witnessing the absolute destruction of the foundations that has made this land great. And the results are tragic. The American family is all but dead and a government that really, it pays mothers to be single. And it allows fathers to abandon their responsibilities to their children. And with the destruction of fatherhood and family in our nation, we have seen a vast increase of immorality, and especially immorality in our youth. Many are struggling with sins of effeminacy, homosexuality, with gender confusion, and sexual immorality. It runs rampant among the young people in our day. We've watched as suicide rates have skyrocketed among the youth. And the unthinkable, our children, have walked into their very own schools and murdered their fellow students. We have seen the increase of sexual immorality on a scale that no one could ever have expected. Men would rather watch pornography than actually do the hard work to find a woman to be with. And the cost of such sexually immoral men has been absolutely a tragedy. Men who want pleasure with absolutely no responsibility, this has resulted in the death of millions of babies across our land. Mothers who God has specifically gifted with the ability to nurture and to raise their children show the utter depravity of our nation when they would rather brutally murder their children than raise them according to the will of God. For those who stand for biblical truth, they have become public enemy number one. The greatest sin of our society right now is to talk about sin. Our government has become increasingly corrupt and evil. They have lost sight of their biblical mandate, what Paul says, the very reason that God has given this institution of government. Romans 13.3 tells us that, that the rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but for bad. That the government is supposed to be a servant for our good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. This was the purpose of government, to be righteous, to be just, to be a servant of God, to be an avenger of evil for God. They are to bear the sword of justice against all forms of evil in a society. This is what God has called the civil government to do. To carry out God's wrath 
on the evildoer in the here and now. But what do we see from our nation? We see a government that calls evil good and good evil. And literally they are punishing the righteous. About once a month I make the trek to Planned Parenthood and I I go there to plead with the mothers to turn back from that place. To turn away from that place. To turn to Christ and live. I plead with them that they would not go through that heinous act of abortion. Every single time I go, there's a police officer there. That police officer is there to protect the so-called right to abortion. The so-called right to be able to murder your unborn child. And I want to hear, hear me tonight. There is no such right. It does not exist. But this shows the topsy-turvy nature of the world that we live in right now. A police officer, a servant of God, instead of standing for righteousness and arresting any who were complicit in this heinous act, instead, they protect it. Not only that, our Supreme Court has ruled that what God has clearly called sin in His Word, they have called it marriage. Our government has undermined the building blocks of society. Marriage between one woman and one man. How can you have a society without marriage and without family? But our government says no. We're not going to stand for what God would have us. Family and government, the building blocks of our society, they are crumbling all around us. But not only them, the Church of America... The Church of America is filled with people who follow the American dream rather than Jesus Christ. They come to church hoping that they can live their best life now. But they don't know His Word. They do not obey His commandments. They call themselves Christians, but their lives look absolutely no different than the rest of the world. The church has largely watered down the truth of the gospel. And the results are disastrous. And really, it started with the church. You want to know why the society is crumbling around us? It started with the household of God. It started when we left behind biblical inerrancy, saying that the Scriptures are the infallible Word of God. It started when we let liberalism creep into the church, saying like Satan, did God really say? We stopped taking His Word seriously. Things like preaching the word, church membership, and church discipline have all but completely disappeared from the American church. The idea of sharing your faith and making disciples are strange and almost unheard of. And if you do so, you're considered a zealot. The church can hardly be the voice of righteousness that we are to We can hardly be the buttress of the truth as it says we are to be in Scripture when we are so filled with unrepentant sin. When we don't know the Word of God, when we don't know what God has called us to, when we refuse to be the salt and the light of the world. When Jesus called us to be the salt of the world, he, He asked us to push back the decay 
It was used as a preservative to preserve meat from rotting. And ultimately, if there is no light, if there is no salt in a culture, it is rotten. And Jesus said that if salt has lost its saltiness, it's of absolutely no use. It's of no use for the soil or for the manure pile, is the words of Christ. It is to be thrown away. We see all around us that the foundations of our nation have crumbled. When the wicked rule, when the foundations have crumbled, when a society hates God and hates what God loves, the question tonight is, what can the righteous do? Tonight we're going to look at a psalm that really answers this question. David finds himself in a similar situation that we find ourselves in, in this nation. And we see tonight that David, he looks to the Lord. In verse 1 of Psalm 11, if you look with me there, it says there, David says, in the Lord I take refuge. So what should the righteous do? First off, take refuge in the Lord. This is where David's hope was. The Lord was his rock, his refuge, his salvation. The Lord is where he found protection from the wicked. The Lord is his safety from the evil men that surrounded him. The Lord is his trust, his confidence, his fortress in a time of trouble. Here in verse 1, you can see that David, he is, he's going to switch gears here. The beginning of this psalm will start with some advice, advice that he's getting from what it seems to be close friends. It's not good advice. And this psalm is really a reaction to that advice. There in verse 1 it says, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? And so some of his close friends have given him this advice, flee like a bird to your mountain. Ten of danger, David, you should run away. You should flee. This is what they are advising him to do. To cease to trust in God, to take matters into his own hands, and to run. In other words, to be a coward. (coughs) To run away from the battle. But David, he will take no such advice because as he has said, the Lord is his refuge. But their advice continues. Look at me. Look with me at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright. So the reason that David should run, the reason that David should flee, is because the wicked seek to attack the upright in heart. They seek to attack the people of the Lord. The wicked, they conspire to destroy the righteous. And with so many wicked, so many evil men coming against God's anointed With so many wicked that the foundations of society have crumbled, they ask this question in verse 3. What can the righteous do? One commentator, he noted on this verse saying this, In a world and society run amok, where the dignity of life is casually ignored, 
and raw power rules in place of justice, righteousness, and equity, what can a righteous person hope to do? The advice of these men to David was really self-centered. Their advice was, David, run every man for himself. Flee like a coward. Run, retreat. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, and the only thing left to do is run. This was their advice to David. And really, this has become a a popular sentiment in our day. A best-selling book recently gave the outline for Christians to do just this, to run away, to retreat from the culture, a desire to hide, to huddle up while the world declines. But this is so far from God's will for us. This is not what God has called us to. We as Christians are never called to just stand by while the wicked rule. We are never called to just turn a blind eye to evil. We are never called to to cease our mission to the dead and dying world, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. We are never called to cease to be the light of the world. We are never called to despair. We are never called to be devoid of hope. We are never called to have a spirit of fear. We are not called to run. We are called to be like David is here in this psalm. To be those who do not fear those around us who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. We are called to find refuge in the Lord and continue to fight for his will here on earth. This is what he has called us to. So what's David's response to this bad advice? What can the righteous do when the society is crumbling around him? When it seems like evil is prevailing, what can the righteous do? Well, David tells us they can look to the Lord. They can remind themselves of who God is and what God has said. In verse 4, David says, the Lord is in his holy temple temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Wicked may seem to be prevailing. The foundations are crumbling and we are all being tempted to retreat, to run, to be like cowards. But David is saying to us here tonight, God has not changed. He is still in his temple. His presence is still here. He is still at work in this world. No matter how dark it seems out there, God has not left us. God has not forsaken us. He has not left his people. He has not abandoned them. That is really what David is saying here. He is still here with us. When we feel like all is lost, remember this tonight. God is still with us. God is still here. He is still in his holy temple. Not only here on earth, it says here that he is on his throne. He is the true king. In spite of dire circumstances, in spite of the wicked raging, the Lord remains on his throne. He still reigns supreme as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It might seem like the wicked are prevailing. It might seem like God will be defeated in this life that we live. But nothing could be further 
from the truth. The wicked, the Bible says, they plot in vain. Why? Because God is still on His throne and nothing is happening apart from His perfect rule. He is sovereign. And the beautiful thing about our good God is He is even at work when men have evil intentions in their hearts. Their desire is to thwart the will of God, but He is using those very desires to further His perfect purpose for all of history. He even uses wicked men for His purpose. As it says, that God created the wicked for the day of trouble. David knew here in this psalm that there was nothing to worry about. There was nothing to worry about because God was not a man that he could lie. See, David was like Abraham. He believed God. He had faith in God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And he believed God. He took God at his word. And so he knew that nothing could change what God had promised So it doesn't matter how many evil men come against him. It doesn't matter what his circumstances look like. God is not a liar. His promises are true. And what he said will absolutely come to pass no matter what. And so even as we look around this society, as we look around and we we see the foundations of this society crumbling, we can surely be like David and believe with all our hearts that Christ is still king. And what God has said will be and that he is still on his throne. And the Bible says that Christ will have the final victory. And so when the wicked prevail, what can the righteous do? Trust in the Lord. Trust him for he is good and what he said will surely come. Spurgeon, he commented on this verse saying, The problems for David were indeed bad. But what were all these things to a man whose trust was in God alone? Nothing is too difficult for God. The better question here tonight is, With God on his throne, what on earth can the wicked do? With God ruling and reigning, can the wicked truly even do anything to stop his wondrous will? The answer is absolutely not. The verse goes on to say he is on his throne. And it says there that his gaze, it reaches all. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. No one can escape the scrutiny of God. No one can escape His gaze. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He tests the children of man. You know, a side note on this verse, you know, oftentimes we, when we sin, we're so worried about what other people will think. What if so-and-so finds out about what I said or what I did? But really, from this verse, you know who we should be worried about? God. He sees all things. He knows every single sin that you've ever conceived in your heart. And so maybe you should be asking the question tonight, what if God sees my sin? What if God sees that I sinned against Him? 
And this very sin that He crushed His one and only Son on the cross for. No, we shouldn't be worried about what other people think. We should be worried about what God thinks. We should be grieved when we have a desire to sin because this is the very sin that Christ died for. This is the very sin that the living God sent His one and only Son to die in your place. This God of ours, He is the God that this psalm says sees all. In verse 5 it says, The Lord tests the righteous. He tests those who are His. Those who are righteous in Christ. I want to tell you tonight what a privilege we have to be tested by God. If you look at this psalm and what happens to the wicked and what happens to the righteous, it's far better to be tested by God than judged by God. We have such a privilege to be refined by the Lord. David knew that even in the face of an impossible trial, the Lord, even though he had given him this circumstances, the Lord did not despise him. The Lord wasn't treating him badly, but he knew that God was for him and that God loved him as his very own son. And as a good father, he gives his children what they need in life, not necessarily what they want. The scripture says here that the Lord tests the righteous. You know, the testing will come in your life. Over and over again, we see it in Scripture. The testing will come in your life. When you realize that God has brought that fiery trial upon you, realize this tonight. He is growing you in that trial. He loves you. He cares for you. He doesn't want to leave you the way you are. So he is the refining father who is in heaven, who loves his son or daughter in Christ. And so he allows them to be tested by life's circumstances so that they can be refined. And as I said, it is far greater to be refined by God than judged by God. Look with me to verse 5. Of the wicked, this is what verse 5 says, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. You know, God, he, he inspired these words. And, you know, if you read the Psalms and you read them a lot, you're actually going to see that he says this stuff a lot in the Psalms. So he obviously wanted us to hear it. Psalm 5, 6 gives a similar ver- verse. He says, you destroy, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Far from the message that we hear so often today, that God accepts the sinners as they are, far from being okay with us in our sin, far from the message that we hear so often that God just loves everybody. This verse clearly tells us that God rejects those who are not His. He rejects His enemies. While remember, in the context, He's speaking of those enemies that have come against David We know from Scripture that there is no neutrality. If you are in Christ, you are a friend of God. If you are outside of Christ, you are an enemy of God. 
there are really only two types of people in the world. The people of God and the enemies of God. Those who are in Christ, those who God is for, and those who the Psalms clearly teach that God is against. The Bible says that God stands opposed to the proud, but He gives way to the humble. The Bible says that there is absolutely no neutrality. As Christ said, you are either for me or you are against me. And James makes this point clear. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. While David, he writes here of the enemies of God in his day, this is true of the heart of God towards all who have rebelled against him and have not come to him for mercy. People in reading this text, reading this right here in Psalm 11, verse 5, might ask the question, well, what about John 3, 16? Doesn't God love everyone? Well, God has shown his great love to the world. He has shown his great love to sinners by sending his one and only son to die in the place of sinners. But that verse, John 3, 16, it tells us exactly who receives that love. The ones who receive that love are the whosoever. The whosoever who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is they that shall not perish. It is they that are saved from the fire and brimstone that Psalm 11 speaks of. And so it is clear from Scripture, you have to be in Christ in order to receive this gift of eternal life. You have to be in Christ in order to receive this eternal love of complacency that is found in Jesus Christ. And even the book of John makes this very clear. In John 3.18, just two verses after that famous verse, John 3.16, it says this, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Because God is holy, because God is pure, because God is just, he must hate what is evil. He must reject all evil. Tonight, I want you to think about this for a moment. Really take this in and take it to heart. For you to be pro-life, you have to hate abortion. For you to be pro-marriage, you have to hate adultery. Since God is pro-holiness, he rejects anything that is impure. Of the wicked, verse 6 tells us that their fate will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the exact same language. In verse 6 it says this, Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and brimstone. You hear that teaching? Or you hear that often, right? fire and brimstone type preaching? Well, this is where it comes from. It's called biblical preaching. It's what the Word of God says. It says this of the wicked, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and brimstone, and a scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. This is God's Word. This is what He has said. 
In verse 7, it says, For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Tonight, I want to finish with this. He is righteous, and he loves the righteous. And he says of the upright that they shall see his face. But of the wicked, they will receive his judgment. Fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone. This is their portion. If you are hearing this message tonight, please. You know, this doesn't have to be your fate. Because John 3.16 is in the Bible, it doesn't have to be our fate We can be the whosoever that receives eternal life in Christ. You can be one who beholds the face of God. Yes, the sinner can behold the face of the holy God. But only if you come through Christ. Only if you come through this perfect Savior who was born of a virgin, who lived the spotless, sinless, perfect life who gave himself up on a cross to suffer for your sins, to bear your fire and brimstone, to bear the burden that you could not bear. It says here that this is the portion. This is their portion of their cup. Jesus, he drank your cup. He drank your cup for you. To be your substitute. And tonight I want to urge you. I tell you, the more I study the Psalms, it is so scary to reject Jesus Christ. Make sure you know this Jesus. Make sure you turn to him in faith. Make sure you are trusting in his perfect work. Make sure you are trusting in his ability to save. It's not about what you are doing. It's all about what Christ has done. It's not how good you are at following Christ. It's not how good you are at being a Christian. It's about Christ. Tonight, need this Christ. Be desperate for this Christ. Trust in this Christ to save you. Because you need this Christ. And the scriptures state that all who have this Christ, as it says here that God is righteous and he loves the righteous, they will have his perfect righteousness accounted to them. What a beautiful thought. Sinners like us. The perfect righteousness of Christ accounted to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums it all up. For our sake he made him to be sin. Not that Christ became sinful, but that he bore our sin. The one who knew no sin, so that in him you and me might become the righteousness of God. Is there any greater news? And with this perfection accounted to you, you a sinner, as this psalm says, you can behold the face of God. You as a sinner can be loved by the Holy God. Turn to Christ and live.